everyone and welcome back to a new episode of Relative Pitch. We are so, so, so excited to have a fantastic human being with us today, Dr. Catherine Bushman. She is the Wynn Ensemble Conductor and the Associate Professor of Music Education at St. Cloud State University. How are you doing today? Hey, 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 I'm doing great. It's really cold up here in Minnesota. So I hope you guys are all staying warm. It's been a crazy winter. Yes, it has. And then I literally just saw that there's supposed to be another like cold front coming up there somewhere. Oh, up there. Yeah, up there. No, up there, okay. y'all. Well, <laughs> I mean, y'all see what Texas is doing. So just wait. It'll blow over to Georgia. Don't wait. Uh-uh. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't wish that upon Anthony because Anthony might leave the country. I will. <laughs> I will travel right back down to Florida, like to Miami specifically. I I won't. I I I cannot do cold. So my hat is off to you, Dr. Bushman, because bless you, bless you. Um. So I mean, I know that you spent a lot of time in in Georgia. So like, please tell us about that and how also you got acclimated to the cold life. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. No, I grew up in uh outside Atlanta, Georgia. Those of us who are from Georgia will say I'm from Marietta. I'm from Cobb County. Um, And then for some reason, when we go out of state, we say we're from Atlanta just to make it easy for people. So y'all know where I'm from. Um, I grew up in Cobb County and uh, went to college in Chicago at Northwestern University, Um, taught high school band for a year out in the Chicago suburbs, and then came back home. I was an assistant band director at Lasseter High School, which is where I went to school for um, nine years. And uh, then I kind of went the grad school route, went to uh, work on my doctorate full time. And I've been teaching college. This is kind of like my second chapter, I guess I would say, because I've I taught high school for about 10 years and I'm in my 10th year of teaching college. So um I was that uh, that band kid in high school who aspired to be the drum major, you know, a little clarinet player. Um, and I just loved everything about band. So when I graduated from high school, I was kind of torn between wanting a career in performing and uh, wanting a career in teaching. Um, but as soon as I got to Northwestern, I entered the music ed program because that seemed most practical. And uh and after I graduated, I I just went into to teaching high school. So um, it's been a journey. You know, I really, um, I love high school band. I think that's because that was what gave me so much um, uh, in learning music and being part of a community. And so I had aspired when I was in grad school to, to find a way to have a career where I was still teaching band and had an ensemble and still had my hand in music education and mentoring new teachers. So it's kind of funny at the grad level, like they kind of make you try to choose, you know, between um, focus and, and, and that was a real challenge for me. I, I waited a while to go to grad school and ended up at the university of Texas where I could have great mentors in both areas. And um, but, you know, it's like you, you find these challenges and all it takes is just one person to tell you, you know, that's a good idea. And I had a professor at Texas who was like, you know, well, what is it you want to do? And I'm like, well, I want to teach band and I want to help future teachers. And she's like, there's a lot of ways to do that. And so I was like, okay, you know, and so I I did my focus in conducting, but was able Mm -hmm. to find college jobs that allowed me to do those two things. So that's what I keep doing. 
Wow. I, there's so much actually pause for two seconds, Anthony. We mm -hmm. say that we don't just uh, have Atlanta or Georgia guests, but at this point, I don't think we can actually say that anymore because it is crazy. <laughs> the track record we have of being like, we don't just like talk to Atlanta people, but we do, and we're gonna say it. We're, it's we're we're done pretending. <laughs> but there's a lot of folks in Atlanta, and there's a lot of great people that come from this little bitty old place. Yeah, well, not no, not just Atlanta. Okay, the whole state of Georgia, mm -hmm. the whole state of Georgia. Mm hmm. Yes. So disclaimer: we do only talk to Georgia people from now. <laughs> well, you know, and it's funny when I um. Uh, get up in front of groups here in Minnesota and I kind of explain where I'm from. Um, uh, I've had Mary Land as a guest conductor at my college honor band and she's up in Michigan. And I said, you know, there is a small but mighty force of people moving from the South to the North. And usually the audience is just sort of like, what are you talking about? And so I use, I use Mary as an example of that. Yep. I use Aris Golden as an example. Yeah, and uh, and we commiserate, you know, I asked Aris, I said, how do you like those winners? And she's like, you just buy a coat, you know, you just deal yeah. with it. You just buy it. That is something she would say. That is something. She I, I was at Western when Mary's the education faculty. So I yeah. got to work with her a lot. She literally emailed me a day after she found that out. I was from Georgia. She said, we got to stick together. Also, we have to infiltrate. Let's work on infiltrating, but still sticking together. And then the year after I left, three people from the South came up. I said, we're doing it. We're doing it. Yeah, we're a mighty force. We're a mighty force. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, I love that you you said that I am not choosing, you know, between the, like you have a love for both, you know, conducting a band, also teaching future teachers because in reality, future teachers, they need the most because it's a lot of things that they don't know. And I was just talking to um, a colleague the other day um, who is like in their second year and was like, I I wish somebody would have told me this or so, you know, things like that. And it's people who are like yourself, who truly mentors um, those future teachers of like, hey, let's do this. And not a lot of people who go into that higher education route, especially in the conducting route, it's like, I want to have my hand in this too. So absolutely fantastic on your part. Um, and so back to you being a band director uh, at Lasseter, how's that experience? I mean, you grew up in that program. You came back to that program. Um, you were with a great friend of ours, Alfred Watkins. Like, it, how was that? It was great. I tell you what, you know, um, a lot of us, when we go into music education, the reason why we're in it is because of that high school band and that high school band director. And so it really was a dream of mine to go back to Lasseter to teach and to work with Alfred Watkins. And, um, you know, early in the relationship, you know, it was that sort of thing where you go from being a student to a colleague. And so um, that was really hard. Um, uh, two of my former teachers were there, Sue Samuels and Alfred Watkins. And so they welcomed me in. It was my second year teaching. And, you know, I knew the program really well, but I was also really intimidated. You know, I'm like, these are kids who know what good teachers are. This is a really busy program. And they just welcomed me in. They said, you know, first of all, um, Mr. Watkins said to me, he's like, he's still Mr. Watkins, but he said, uh, you know, Susie and I are best friends and we sort of read each other's minds. So don't feel like, don't feel bad if you feel left out. And that's a pretty typical thing when you're a young teacher is you're just kind of trying to catch up and, and all of that. So they just, 
um, welcomed me in and um, gave me plenty to do. And I just learned, learned, learned um, about teaching band, about um, about being a part of a big program. Um, and, you know, to go back to your home community and teach the little brothers and sisters of the kids that you went to school with was mm-hmm. so fun. Of course, I would get their names mixed up. You know, it was like, are you Brian or are you Eric? Um, <laughs> But, you know, those, those uh, kids were pulling for me, you know, they wanted me to be successful and um, uh, just really like, you know, respected me stepping into that teacher role. Um, Probably about six, seven years into that job, I realized what I was really trying to do was to, to be a part of that program with my former teacher and really support him. Um, because he's such a great teacher. He's such a great teacher and he keeps the program so busy and it wears you down so much. And so I tried to be that assistant director that just kept everything running. You know, you can't be completely on as a person or as a teacher for um, 180 days a year, you know, but um, we all have different ways of motivating ourselves. Last year program was, um, was focused on big events, you know, whether it was concert band events or marching band events. And so we did a great job of helping the program ramp up to an event, enjoy that event, and then kind of come back down and prepare for the next thing. So we never did the same thing every year. And I think that was something that I thought helped the health of the program and the health of everybody involved. Because as you know, um, marching band, for example, is just a, a suck of money and time and has just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. So even if that was a nationally competitive program, it wasn't a nationally competitive program every year. And so that was one way that we kind of stayed balanced. Um, when I left that program to go to grad school, you know, it it's interesting because what I learned at Lassiter really only works at Lassiter um, in that community when those goals are focused to those things. But I've taken away what I've learned about people and what I've learned about communities and what I've learned about myself and try to apply that to other programs. How do we keep people motivated to learn? How do we build community? Um, and I don't know if he did this intentionally. Like when you talk to Alfred Watkins, he is so great at being a mentor. Mm-hmm. And I remember he would say to me several times over the nine years I worked with him, you know, he's like, but how would you teach music, Catherine, if you were on an Indian reservation? And I remember just looking at him, just being like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, I'm in Marietta, Georgia. We are the national championship marching band. Like, this is what we do. And he would just plant that seed. And I honestly, I think I don't ever think I had an answer for him. Um, And now I live in a state with with multiple Indian reservations, you know, and it's like um, what that pointed me to was the idea that we are all informed by culture and history and the places where we teach. Um, and so when I was in grad school, I did take an opportunity to do some work in different communities. I was in Texas, right? And I was curious about those programs and I was curious about the great programs and the not so great programs and everything in between. And so, um, I had a professor that mentored me and I said, well, what about a great program that doesn't have all that? Like, what about a great program that's in a really poor community? What about a great program that's in um, what we consider in our country a minority population, but in those communities is the majority population, you know, a Hispanic community 
or a black community and where there's a really great program. And I said, what, what can we find out about how those programs tick? And so I did a little case study. I went down to the Rio Grande Valley, um, right on the Southwest border, Texas. And I found a program where there were 10 band directors in grades, uh, six through 12 that worked together to teach all the students, uh, you know, uh, beginning through high school would get 25 to 30 students a year in the Texas All-State Band and just like award upon award, but was one of our, our poorest communities we have in the country. And I went there to find out what made them tick, you know, and I think that was the start of, for me, taking what I learned earlier in my career and trying to have conversations about with people about what is excellence, like what is our true commitment to music education and how it can look different in every community. Ooh, ooh, I could talk about this literally all day because community like engagement and building around music is like kind of my bag right now. And I'm trying to like stay in that because it's so important to realize that uh, the arts of the city, well, everything, arts and culture of a city is shaped by the community and the communities that make up the general community. Um, and being in Seattle, like it's completely, di completely different, like what communities are here versus whenever I was in my master's at Albuquerque and whenever I lived in Georgia, it's very different. And I think people too often, I think, especially in our field, feel like it's the same everywhere you go, you can do the same thing and you'll get the same impact. And it's just not true in general, because you could have more if you were to think about, you know, who's actually here, how can I how can my music reflect or my rep, whatever, reflect what is going on currently? And then also the idea of actually reaching out to these communities and going to to hear um, or see what is happening within the communities. I love that so much. And I can easily see how beneficial that would be for band directors, especially you're getting all these kids from different places and you never know what their background is or who like they could have family over there. They could be from here, but then they have family over there. You just never know. So like, what did you, when you went, and I love the idea of going to the places that actually don't have the most resources who are making it like work. So like, what did you find? What was, I mean, I'm not looking for the key or solution because we know that everyone makes magic happen differently where they are, but like, what did you find that they were doing or what was happening in those poor communities like that were allowing them to have the success that they were? Sure, sure. So I think it's a lot of pieces. One is having somebody who's brave enough to lead and kind of lead fearlessly, you know, and so the older generation of band directors had a huge influence on the Rio Grande Valley, um, kind of they had this uh, uh, sort of funnel system from the the summer Vandercook programs down to Brownsville, Texas, which is like right on the, the end of that valley. And so there was a there was a pipeline of teaching and teachers who went to kind of learn like sort of the legit old school kind of music ed teaching, like how to teach all the band instruments really well. Um, and then the second piece was community buy-in. And in Texas, one of the things that's amazing is that they have um, supported athletics and fine arts like equally, you know, in terms of state funding. And so that provides a lot of resources in terms of uh, a community that might not be able to afford a really nice facility. Everybody has really nice facilities. Everybody has instruments and um, the support for the number of teachers they wanted in that program was there. Um, and then the other thing is, is actually a challenge, which is retention of teachers. 
Um, that continues to be a challenge. But what is great about it is you've got teachers who are from that community um, that are there for a variety of reasons. They want to make a difference. They're bringing in their school, their friends from undergrad who might be from Fort Worth area. You know, you see some people from kind of outside there where they grew up. But it's um, it's one of those places that when you grow a program, you immediately see results because you have those key pieces in there. Um, you know, I, I tried to dig a little deeper and see like what some of the other elements were that made it so special. And, you know, it's a little fraught. It's not a perfect system, but there is that sort of um, that tough love kind of situation where these teachers will push those students more, I think, because they understand their backgrounds, because mm -hmm. they know that in the summer we keep the band room open because these are kids that want a place to go. Um and I think being from that community provides a piece of understanding that maybe when I see colleagues who are not from the community or who don't hold those identities that their students have, they don't adapt as well or in the same way as these teachers mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I'm just very thankful that you took the time to go into these programs because a lot of the time, especially in our curriculum, as we go through education, um, we are taught to teach one type of band, not mm -hmm. all. Um, and I remember saying that in, when I was in an undergrad of like, um, when it came time for me to be a student teacher, I was like, and this is no shade to your home, but I was like, I don't want to teach. I don't want a student to teach in cop because the likelihood of that being my first job is highly unlikely. It is highly unlikely. Can I be placed somewhere where it is maybe lower SES school, you know, with these challenges, blah, blah, blah because that is most likely mm -hmm. what I'm gonna be dealing with. And so I got placed in a school that I truly learned. It was a um, high Latinx community, which was completely different from my community in a lot of like minute things. Like, of course we had some shared experiences, but it was completely different. So I got to learn more about that community. And in my first job teaching in Florida, I had a both population of Latinx along with black community. So I'm like, okay, I now know more about the students that are sitting in front of me than if I didn't mm -hmm. have that experience. Um, and so I think for our students, you know, coming up, it, it's sometimes, I always kind of felt like a disadvantage of when you're in those music education classes, you have to teach this way. Well, sometimes we don't have this instrument or we don't have that privilege to do this, to do that. Um, and I always wanted to know, do you think there will be some type of reform in that part of our education curriculum for our teachers, our you know upcoming teachers to say, there's not one type of band. There are multiple types of band and there's multiple types of success uh, in your program. It doesn't all need to look like this one, you know, thing that mm -hmm. you see in the textbooks. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the reason why we're not talking about that more is the people that who would encourage us to think about change are the music education people and the people who need to embrace it are the wind band people, honestly. And we see those divides in almost every music school there is. Mm. And um, I feel like it was probably around 2010, 2011, 
there was like an outright fight that broke out between these two sides when College Music Society published, you know, this manifesto of what undergrad music education should be. It was really kind of, um, I, I feel like it more than stirred the pot. I think it just like put it out there that the undergrad music education or the undergrad music degree, not just music education, is not serving the future of of music in whatever form. And because those two sides had already decided they didn't like each other, there was very little room for us to kind of come together and make change. And so we -hmm. saw the university conductors sort of feel threatened by this talk. and, And then history sort of moved on and the pandemic came about and then we just kind of set it aside and we haven't quite figured out, like we just sort of cooled off on its own. But two things I really thought about in my music ed program most recently, one is this conversation has been happening for a long time. Um, John Kratis wrote an article in 2007 that sort of looked at how enrollment in school music programs is declining while we know that consumption of music is increasing, you know? And so why is that? Why is that happening? Why are communities growing yet less students are enrolled in secondary, which is my focus, you know, in school music. And so it's that divide between school music and home music and community music. Um, and um, and the second piece is when you look at that and you look at instrumental music education, for example, um, and you just make a simple statement, uh, which I think can be pretty shaking, is... Uh, Instrumental music education as it exists has not had significant reform since the mid 19th century. Yes. You know, and when you look at that and you think about how many things have changed, you know, like we don't drive the same cars, we don't read the same books, we don't, we have all this technology that's changed how the world works. Um, The ways in which the world was separated culturally have completely been shattered by technology, you know, and so like what, what kind of music happening in India or Korea or China and Indonesia, like those things aren't a question anymore. You just turn on YouTube and you can listen to it. And right. so we're stuck in the past. And, and I think, I think it's all coming to a head. I think the differences in class and race um, that have been happening in our political sociological world have impacted music education. And it's, it's huge. It's huge. And the people who think they're fixing it are really just have a small lens. It's not about adding rock music to the curriculum. You know, it's not about adding pop music. It's not about adding a composition class here or there. You have to understand why we're here, how this happened, and then decide what principles I think are going to guide us that are going to change how we do everything. You know, when you look at it that Mm -hmm. way, it completely changes. You know, because what you were saying, Lauren, about how music is community based, um, just that alone, right? When you take that lens to everything that a eight-year-old does in music class, you know, to a high school student, to a professional, and you just look at who's involved, who's making the music, who's involved, who's it for, that completely changes, Mm -hmm. that completely changes the rules of the game. So we've got a ways to go, um, but what's exciting is, is that there's almost no place you could do wrong. You know, there's no way to, you can't make it any worse. You can only make it better. So, you know, each of us has kind of taken our charge wherever we are to just be a good person, you right. know, just try to be a good teacher 
try to be competent, try to be musical, try to be an artist and, uh, and then have these conversations because when we stay separated, we tend to follow the norms and expectations that were put in front of us. Mm. And we never want to say that our teachers or our conductors and the people who have inspired us did any wrong because they gave us so many opportunities, you know, but as we all move forward and you all move forward, you know, and our audience here moves forward, you get to decide which way you go. You get to decide who the music's for, which music you're going to perform, who's going to perform it, for when, how often, who's going to evaluate it, if anybody, you know? Um, I, I think it was Cynthia Johnson Turner who said um, when she was on the podcast, if you took a person from 1910 or let's say 1950s out of a band room and plopped them into a band room today, they most likely will know what to do. <laughs> nothing has really changed yeah. in those amount of years since, you know, in school band after World War II has been. Yep. And that's, you know, I, I, some can say a good thing, but I, to me, that's a bad thing. A lot of things have changed since 1950. Yes. A lot of things, a lot yes. of innovations, <laughs> a lot of social reforms, a, just a lot of things. But the fact that a person could still be like, oh, I need to pick up my instrument. Uh, it just might be symphony and B flat uh, by Hindemith right here in front of me. I know what I need to do. That is it. That to me, it's something with all of our the things that, that have kind of come through the years, something has to change. And I know like we talk about on this podcast um, how the music in general is not welcoming to people of minority um, or people that is out of that, this is not a band director, this is not what your quote unquote musician looks like or behaves like. Um, it has been a challenge for us as young individuals coming up um, and being who we are that um, not taken seriously in this field. And it is something that you said of it is just the norms of this. And I think a part of Relative Pitch, what we do is we're trying to break these norms. We really, really are because I I can say it for myself. I, I usually hate norms. I'm like, mm -mm, I'm gonna do it this way because if I don't like it, I'm, a, I'm just gonna do it another way. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just how we three became friends is because we all had that... Um, that mindset. So another thing that you said about how we just do our own thing and then that so many people uh, have their own, you know, like I'm breaking this norm that I feel like uh, if we all banded together, we really could change this current music field because a lot of people, we have the same mindset. We just haven't connected with each other just yet. But I feel like yeah. it's coming very soon. I feel like it's coming very soon. And I feel like to your point, Anthony, and to Dr. Bushman's point, is like some people who are not trying to change the norms, they don't talk to enough people to even challenge their ideas. Like they get, I could trust me, because I go into a bunch of different schools now. Each school is its school. And I feel like I, like, I know y'all are busy. I know this, I know this. But talk to other people people mm. talk to other programs and then what dr bushman said earlier if you define what your principles are 
and what the principles that need to guide your community, then your measure of success becomes different than, oh, I went and played at this conference, this conference, this conference. I've won this many grand championships in marching band. My program is now successful. I am done. Or if you have those principles guiding you, it looks different. Like, oh, we went and played at, we went and played in our like square, like our Marietta square for our community. And everybody came out and enjoyed it. We had a hundred percent of parents show up to a concert. Like that kind of stuff could be your guiding principles. And that is what success is. Everybody knew their music. Like sometimes it is like that. So it's just like, and I, it's cool teaching at different places, not always in the same place. Cause then you teach different students, different ways. Like I can't go into one school and teach them like the other school. Mm. They're different people and they have different backgrounds and different backgrounds of like what happened in their middle school curriculum to set them up for what their high school curriculum is or what is their middle school curriculum? What has it been? And it, it, it cause it's good. How can we even make it better for them? Mm-hmm. So it's just like, we have to view the individual and the community and identify what those principles are. Mm-hmm. But that means also not just sitting by yourself in your office, locked away, listening to the latest grand champion or the bands who just went to whatever conference. Like, what is what do you want to change in your program? Talk to other people around you and different and how they did it, I think, is a great thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think I think one thing I would say to to all of us that I didn't say to myself enough early on is to trust your gut. You know, when you're in a space, when you're doing a job and you're like, this doesn't feel right, you know, or what about this? And you don't feel like you can ask that question. You know, you've probably identified a gap. You've probably identified something that's that's not being addressed. You know, I had been as an assistant director to Bands of America, you know, Grand National Championship several times. I did it as a, as a student in the band. And you're like, well, who who's on the field here and who do they represent? you know, and it's maybe 10% of high school bands out there. And I'm like, well, we're all great and we're doing great, but who, but is this really the, the, the need I feel to do this? Is this really that important? You know? And I think for me going into a teaching career where I didn't center that, you know, has allowed me to grow as a musician, has allowed me to take my family, to live someplace where I wouldn't normally live because as a college teacher, you kind of have to go where the job is and, and, and find those common threads. And you find out that not every kid who's learning an instrument wants to make all state, you know, not every band director who's teaching band wants to get a one at festival. You know, we all sort of what you were just saying, Michael, we all define our success differently. And Minnesota on the whole is not a competitive band state. You know, and there's a lot of reasons for that, the weather, funding, the fact that our communities are so spread out. So what do music teachers have in common? Well, we're passionate about kids. We're passionate about repertoire, um, but we're struggling to find um, a way to grow because we were raised on these norms that were based on enrollment, that were based on funding, that were based on all these things that you're expected to, to have. And what's kind of exciting to me is to see educators who are breaking that quicker. You know, we've got some teachers in uh, Minneapolis public schools. Um, Leslie Earls at Edison High School is a great example. And she is a white teacher, you know, teaching in a diverse community. And the concert band is not the center of her program. 
you know, shock, you know, how can she have a music program and not have the concert band as, as the center of the program? Concert band happens. There's a lot of students in it. It's part of the day. Jazz band is big and bigger than jazz band is her drum line. She has two levels of drum line. Um, and she didn't grow up playing in drum lines. So that's something that, that she looked at her school and her community and said, what can I do to add music to this school? And she talked to the kids in the hall and said, what do you, what kind of music do you want to make? And she built that into a drumline program. And it's like that, those are the kind of teachers. And I asked her, I said, well, so what made you want to do this? And she's like, her philosophy is centered on student voice and choice and having their buy-in to what she does. This year, she's taking the jazz band and the drumline, the upper drumline to LA for a trip and to, for a performance. And it's like, she didn't need a contest to do that. Um, but that was the part of the program that she wanted to emphasize. And, uh, uh, we see teachers who are offering different styles of music outside of the school day. Um, you know, because it's like, what would you rather do as a music teacher? Would you rather coach kids for Allstate? Would you rather teach lessons or would you rather start a hip hop club? You know? And so Eric Songer, um, in Chaska, Minnesota is, offering these sort of, he calls them like six week modules and kids could come in and learn pop music. They can uh, create their own ensembles. They can do drumming. They can do, you know, all kinds of things. And, and again, that performance ensemble is not the center of his program, offering variety, offering more spaces for kids to, to take part in music. So, you know, I think it's happening, but just like you all are saying, like it's happening slowly. And, um, you know, even even anything that in your instrumental pedagogy is different from using fill in the blank standard method book. Like, do we really need that method book? Like what really is the best way to teach? And, and you'll talk to teachers who are like, yep, taught essential elements for five or six years. And I wanted something different. And I think Jen Bergeron, who's a friend of mine, a former student is teaching in Round Rock, Texas has centered her program on teaching the individual, you know, and it was a really big deal for her to get that program at Midwest last year because she wanted to show that she can teach an ensemble just as well as anyone else that's based on different musical and uh, uh, learning principles for her students. You know, so I think what we have to do is we have to what you're saying, talk to people. We have to watch them teach. We have to go into their schools and see what's important and and mentor each other you know, tell somebody who's struggling, welcoming into the profession, you know, this is the way I did it. How do you want to do it? Um, how can I help you do that? Because it's hard. It's hard to be out there. A lot of us feel really isolated. And, um, you know, my college teacher, Jim Keen used to say, he would say decisions, 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 you know, and it's those decisions that you make that are so important for your livelihood as well as the people in your program. I, I just, there's so much that was running through my head, um, thinking about like my own, like, you know, middle school and high school experience versus like the normal public school, like experience. We talk about this a lot because I went through a six through 12 fine arts uh, magnet school, which was very different. I didn't, I never did marching band, which um, I have mixed feelings about now in my life. I think earlier in my life, I was like, ha ha, I never had to do marching band. <laughs> like, especially in Georgia, it's so hot. Oh my gosh. But <laughs> now I'm kind of like, man, like there's something 
that's a whole different level of community uh, engagement and community building that you have within within marching band um, that I've learned from now teaching and, and observing and things. But I like think I'm thinking to myself how different like music education would be if it was centered around community in the sense of the community of the students who you have in front of you as a band director, but also the community that you are embedded with it. Instead of being like, this year our goal is to go out and do this many competitions. What if it's like, actually the goal this year is to go to these two new community venues and perform and have like an attendance of this, you know, or have like, I think someone talked about how a parent, parent having a hundred percent parents show up, like how engaged are your parents doing a, a fundraiser or a drive and you have all the parents out like something that actually shows like how engaged the community is with your program because it does change things i've seen i've seen how how their parents and boosters who say oh you need this you have it because they understand the importance of what goes on in that classroom between the teacher teachers and their students and it would be very different. What if, what if one day, like the, I just, it's so funny to me. I want to see like a, an idea of a huge school who does all these championships just one year going, we're not doing any of those. We're just focusing on community building. Like how amazing would that actually be? Cause it wouldn't really affect them. I don't think the, the students, I think if explained properly to them as to why they were doing it, would go, oh, that's actually really cool. And I, I don't think that that's going to be, you know, there could be some students who are like, oh, about championships. But again, it's how you show them value, how you yourself show value. Yes. So if you put such a huge emphasis on your value mm -hmm. comes from winning these championships, and <clears throat> then of course your students are going to be like, we're not doing championships this year. What the hell? But, in, you know, so I don't know. I'm curious. I really want to educators just an experiment maybe for a year so I can see what happens. That would be really cool. Yeah. Well, I can tell you what happened at Lasseter, you know, when it wasn't a competitive year, um, there was, for one, a little bit of a letdown, you know, the students really liked it, especially in a program where the, the students were successful, where the program was perceived as, as successful. But, you know, you kind of go through that discomfort together and show the students that, are you still valuable as a learner, even though we're not going to this contest? you know, and so you learn by that discomfort. And so mm -hmm. um, you kind of put yourself, we would put ourselves on a four-year cycle. Alfred put the band on a four-year cycle and it was like four years to this, four years to this, but he kind of had to break those cycles after a while. So that again, so that the community can learn what is it we're trying to accomplish. The unfortunate thing is that we've, we've hung so much of our value on those trophies yes. and on those conducting gigs and on all those that that we've again forgotten who we are as people is is what's important and uh i think our longevity in the field is what i think is important because we see a lot of our older generation uh retiring just flat aging out right and so there's a space for new leaders to come in um and i think we we want to do what those before us have done we want to leave the profession in in Great. good shape, you know, um, but our path's going to look different. You know, the, the people who are my age, we're talking about how to balance uh, family with work. We're talking about how we have taken these college jobs, but we're still far away from our parents, you know, and our siblings that we wish we were closer to. 
we didn't prioritize that when we were on the job hunt. Now this is is sort of what we've, we've left with. And it's really hard. Um, You know, you want to go into a community and be a part of it, but um, we can't do everything. We can't be everything to everyone. And so we just try to make the best choices that we can. And, um, and I, and I do feel sorry for those of us in the field who are pushing towards goals that we didn't define for ourselves mm-hmm. or for mm-hmm. our community. We got to give each, give ourselves a break. You know, we've got to give ourselves a break from the social media pressure. We've got to connect more one-on-one. Um, we've got to give ourselves permission to fail at something you know, and say, what is really that failure? That was just me trying something new. It wasn't really failure. Um, But, you know, I'll tell you one thing I'm excited about. And I think the people who are going to change it are the communities where, honestly, where music ed and instrumental music is not as well supported, where their programs are smaller and the teachers are having to figure out what's important. And um, an old friend of mine, I recently reconnected with Heather Fortune, uh, wrote a book called um, Breaking Band, and she kind of put a cool title on it. It's an ebook available from F Flat Music, and she talks a lot about her program, which is at a Quaker school in Philadelphia. Mm. Um, she talks about mixing instruments. She talks about mixing guitars with string instruments with band instruments, making an ensemble out of that. Uh, she talks about wanting her students to be uh, fearless, not flawless. Mm. And she talks about the music that they play uh, being a wide scope, you know, about her doing the arranging uh, to make the music successful for the students. But it's not just rock music. It's not pop music. It's everything. It's classical. It's folk. It's jazz. And uh, and I'm really inspired by that because I think there are a lot of people like her who were meant to be a teacher but maybe didn't go into it because they didn't see themselves in that male white band director mold. Like that's not me, you know, and she was meant to be a teacher. She's a a flautist professional performer, and then just kept falling back into teaching. And so I want to find more of those people. I want to find those people who want to make music on their own terms. um, But don't, but don't follow the mold. You know, because everybody's voice, we were all in that band together. You know what I mean? Like we were playing flute, we were playing trumpet, we were playing drums, whatever it was. And what we're doing now, you know, there's no wrong way to do it. So I'm kind of excited about that. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited too. Um, And just one thing that you said um, that I feel like is a big thing is forgetting what others have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, part of our, uh, what we've learned is basing our success or what we want to do based on what we've seen others do and what is socially accepted. So um, if I'm a band director, I'm going to go to this contest because it has these judges. And if these judges respect me, then, you know, the other okay. ones are going to come. You know, it's like that hive mentality type of thing. So breaking that mold, it it, it is just hard. It's kind of like you're back in like middle or high school with the popular kids and over here. It, it's, it's honestly like that. But when 
you do break the mold, something special. It's like when you finally chisel at a rock and you finally get to what's inside and you realize it's a precious metal. And you're like, I never knew that was there. So mm-hmm. um, I, I just hope that we continue down that path of saying, you know, let's not do this just because others are doing it or somebody before me did it this way. Let's find our own path. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, cause th- those really are the most special moments there. And yeah. I just want to say that cause you, um, Dr. Bushman said something earlier about like, you know, being fearless and it is really hard in, in this field that it, you're constantly comparing yourself to other people, whether that's like in person, social media, to not want to follow a certain trajectory or fit a certain mold. Mm -hmm. And it can be hard and really intimidating to step out of what the normal path looks like. And I think the biggest thing that I've had to learn for myself, it is weird transitioning from, you go from like high school to undergrad. And then especially when you get to like grad school and you're learning like you're like borderline student, borderline collegial, because you're like working out in the field yourself. It's like, where's the line to like, wanting to take the advice of people who are trying to mentor me versus being like, I actually don't think that's me. I actually don't think that that is something that I value the way you value, or maybe we just don't have the same morals and values and that's fine, but we're just different people. And it can be super hard because there have been, I know there I've had friends who've gone to, gone to festivals, summer festivals and things, the big name ones. And they're told like, if you don't, follow you know the the straight and narrow path like you're not going to get the same things that your other colleagues are going to do and it's so disheartening um to to think that just because you're finding your own self your own way that you know you could be uh, looked at differently than your other colleagues but I think the biggest thing I've had to learn personally for myself is like while you're finding your path, there are going to be mistakes and things that you have to adjust and move, like move for change moving forward. It's not going to be perfect on, on your new path you're discovering for yourself because you have to learn what the actual ranges are, like what are the things you want to add into it. So like, I just want to encourage like people who are listening, like, you're going to mess up and it's okay because you were messing up for a purpose. It is intentional mess ups that you go, you know what? Okay. I see what I was trying to do. Let's change this for next time. You're going to learn, you're going to grow from that, but it's better that you're doing that with intention. I'd rather go to a million concerts, shows, recitals, whatever thesis, like defenses, whatever that like, I'm like, okay, I know what they were doing and there's intention there and I can't wait for them to find exactly what they're trying to say rather than going to the same mm-hmm. thing over and over and yes. over. I'm I'm over it. Yes. I don't want to go to the same concerts anymore. I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm an adult with a choice. I can choose. I'm not going to those things anymore. But like I want to go to the ones that I feel like I can see who they are and what they value through what they're showing and it's something different it's something unique to them so but it's to get to that point you have to be fearless you have to go i'm gonna mess up and it's okay and know that you have people like me who are supporting you going yeah i don't even care about the mistakes but you are trying to find out who you are and you're doing it with intention and that's what's important Mm -hmm. i love that you know i i think about the teachers i've had that had the most impact on me and i think they never said to me, you know, Catherine, you need to do this. You need to do this. They really just wanted me to learn and be the best that I could. And they wanted to help me when I wasn't doing so well. 
And I think I just listened to a lot of talk that I, that wasn't there, that honestly wasn't there. And, um, you know, we're entering a phase now where identity and musicianship are hand in hand, Mm. right? And we have to embrace, like, every time we see somebody taking that step to say, this is who I am and this is my musical art and accept all of it. You know, I love the collaboration at Midwest Clinic this past year uh, between the U.S. Navy Band and 8th Blackbird, you know, and uh, Viet Quang is a former student of mine and a friend. Uh, and he put his heart out there. Yeah. It wasn't just about trying to write a great piece for these two ensembles. He had a uh, collaboration that believed in him and believed in what they were trying to do. Um, and, and as they told that story of, um, you know, the, the Navy band's captain looking for this opportunity and you talk to the, the leaders in eighth blackbird, he said, well, yeah, I, I grew up on band music. And of course I would want to do something like that. And, and Viet taking an opportunity to write music that reflected the music that his, his dad played for him in the car on the way to school and the grief he's been feeling over the loss of his dad. The fact that he could put all of that on stage and put all of it in music and it'd be so stunning, you know, it, it should, it shows us that that's, that's what we have to allow as opposed to somebody trying to meet somebody else's norms to make a piece that's fantastic for other reasons or other, you know, show off only just the skill of the composition. Um, But it was that, it was that identity and vulnerability that was, that was put into all of that. I think that made it even more meaningful and impactful as, as we move on. And as we like experience those kind of things. Mm. I think he was one of our first like season one uh, guests he, and everything, and it yeah. just amazing, amazing. He was so nice. We love, love a- we love, love, love. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's so beautiful, and that's what we want in our future students. We want um, in our future educators um, is a sense of vulnerability, of truly connecting with music in whatever form or fashion that comes. And I know, you know, uh, some people going up in band, they're only taught band music is real music. The music you listen to on the radio is not real music. No. Not true. Not true. Um, In fact, like for me growing up, my real music was R&B. It was hip hop. It was gospel. That is real music to me and my family, even today. And they know what I do. They see what I do. But the real music is the music that is in our community, is mm-hmm. in our culture. Um, so anytime I get to do something that kind of bridges the gap, that's why I love Kevin Day's Concerto for Wind Ensemble so much. It's because, and I, and I told him this, I said, this is the first piece where I truly felt as a whole, you combined one of my loves of band music and the other love of R&B and gospel in a true sense of what that is. This is the first time. And luckily I was in the premiere performance and I just remember how electrifying that performance was. It was fire. I saw the recording and heard the recording. Yes. I'm like, and I remember after that first movement, you know, regular, Everybody knows it in classical music, never clap during between the movement. But after that first one, everybody was just like, what? Like we just had to. I never felt that. Yeah. Yeah. We had to. 
because one in the culture that he was, you know, writing that for, we would have clapped because it would have just been like a concert. We would have clapped, you know, especially something that that dynamic going on. We had to show our appreciation for that. Mm -hmm. and, and I just went up to him like almost sobbing, like, wow, this this is what I've been waiting my entire band career to finally hear is a mix of two of me together. So thank you very much. And so, but that goes back to what we've been talking about this entire episode of community. You never, what if I was still in middle school and I heard that piece for the first time and now I'm like, Ooh, maybe I want to do that. Maybe I want to compose now. And now because I stand on the shoulders of Kevin, now I want to do something probably a little more advanced or, or a little more out of the box. Where would we be then? The the it's really limit it, it's limitless, really. Oh no. And I and we are hearing, you know, the up and coming composers talking about that, you know, those moments where they felt like they were seen and that they could tell their stories. Um, you know, Marie Douglas, I've I've seen her online talk about yeah. that. And and it's like, yeah, and not only you saw somebody telling um a story of African American life that wasn't black, you know, and you realize that you could tell that story in an authentic way. Right. Um I've talked to Kate Nishimura and she talks about the importance of the name and how, you know, she puts herself in that situation of, you know, what if I were sitting in in my middle school band and I saw a piece by a name that looked like mine. Mm-hmm. How much does that, how much does that mean? And unfortunately the stories we're working through also involve some pain attached to that mm-hmm. because we can all think of times when we weren't accepted or we felt um, that we would not, that something bad happened to you because you took that chance. And so when I see others telling those stories, you know, we acknowledge that pain and we say, we're going to support you and hold you up and move you forward so that you don't ever feel that again, mm-hmm. that you don't ever feel that lack of acceptance because um, of your gender identity or because of your race or because of you were the only fill in the blank in the room. And, um, and, and the thing I've learned is that because of those uncomfortable moments, the things that I thought I could never approach, I'm learning that there's life after that, you know, that we work through that. We work through grief. We work for, through discomfort. We work through the feeling of not belonging and, and, and we're stronger for it. So, you know, I do think it's important when I talk to people of different experiences in mine that I encourage them um, because I don't ever want to see somebody um, not do something just because they're afraid, because I feel like I won't fit in because I feel like I'm going to make a mistake. And, and there's a lot of us out there that feel that way, like on a daily basis. So, you know, we just, we put so much pressure on ourselves and we have to let that go because great things can happen when you take a chance. Absolutely. Absolutely. It has been a pleasure. Pleasure having you on with us. Um, it, it is exactly what was needed. Thank you so much for coming and 
and telling your story and your and and letting us into your knowledge. Um, <laughs> it, it is just amazing. Uh, we are going to link all of your information down below for all of our audience to go follow you and become part of your village, as we always say here. Um, again, thank you so much for for doing this with us. No, no, no. Thank you for welcoming me in. Um, it's an honor to just meet new people and hear your voices and hear your mission. And, um, and I love it. You know, you, you're building a community and I'm excited to be part of it. I was going to say, you're definitely now part of the village. So. <laughs> <Yes>. The village. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And to our audience, please, please, please check out everything with Dr. Bushman down below. And we will be back next week with another fantastic episode. Have a great week, y'all. See ya. Yay. Thank you.